We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. This is, some people call this the love chapter. How would you define love? It's a question, solid question. There was a movie made by Disney about 14 years ago, a little over 14 years ago. Uh, Fun movie, a lot of fun. There's a song in it that says, how does she know that you love her? I showed it to my kids, and for the next four weeks, they would just sing that song over and over and over and over and over again. So it is seared into my brain. The main character, the main gal, is singing this song to the main guy, and they're not together yet. Uh, and the main guy is singing another, ga- another girl, and this main girl is singing to the main guy, like, you're not doing anything to show your love to this other girl. So how does she know that you love her? How does, how does she know that you care? And I will not sing it for you. <laughs> but how does someone show love? I realized I dropped the ball. Uh, for this sermon. I'm late to the ball game, whichever phrase you want to use, because Valentine's Day was several weeks ago. Every September to October, I set aside a week to prepare my preaching calendar for the next year, and I I studied the Bible Bible book that we're going to be studying. I split it into sections, and I, I pray over, okay, I think I'm going to preach this, this day, this, that day, this, that day, and so I know until January, the end of, end of December, what I'm going to be preaching on. Helps me out, and it's amazing how God works that way. I tried to fit 1 Corinthians 13 onto Valentine's Day, and it just didn't work. I tried, I tried, I tried, and it did not work. But I'm grateful that it didn't. I'm glad it didn't happen. Some people, uh, when they have read 1 Corinthians 13, they have portions of it read at their wedding because it's the love chapter. It's what you do. It's great. Glad that they do it. But there's more going on in 1 Corinthians 13 than just romantic love. Paul is writing to a church that is known by its division. In fact, the church at Corinth was using the things of God, the gifts of the Spirit, to create division. They, they were so proud, they were so sinful, they were so obsessed with themselves that they said, I'm going to take what God gives and I'm going to use this gift to make you look bad and drive you out of the church. That wasn't a good church. Not a good things were happening. To the church of Jesus Christ, not to the marriages of the, in the church of Jesus Christ, but to the church of Jesus Christ, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13, to teach the church how they are to love each other, how they are to relate to each other. Is this chapter applicable for marriage? Yeah, definitely. Is it about more than just marriage? Totally. Whenever a Christian interacts with another Christian, whether it's the one millionth time you've interacted with them or the first time we've interacted with them, 1 Corinthians 13 should be playing in the back of our mind on how this interaction will happen. Today we're just going to focus on the first three verses of this chapter, but we are going to read the whole chapter together today. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding cymbal, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Today we'll see that love should be the basis of everything a Christian does. But before we dive in, will you pray with me? Father, Thank you for giving us your word, not just to explain the amazing salvation we have, but to know how to live it so that others can see that in us. Lord, as we study this passage, I ask that you convict us where we as a church are not living in love. And I ask that you would encourage us every day to reflect you to those around us, that they would see your amazing love as we as we talk, as we fellowship, as we bump into each other around the community, Lord, show yourself in us for your honor and your glory. We need you to act because this isn't natural for us. Lord, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Consistently, throughout the Bible, we see a contrast between what the world tells us and what God tells us. Unfortunately, too often, we follow the lie of the world rather than the truth of God. Today, as we dive into love, let us look at the world's lie. Every day, we are bombarded by perspectives, by messages from the world. We're influenced to view the things of God and the gifts of God in a certain way. In addition to all the ways the world tries to influence us, say, ooh, shiny, go over there. Oh, everything they're doing to distract us from pursuing God and taking his gifts to use them in the right way. The world tells us that flashy gifts are beautiful. The world tells us that flashy gifts are beautiful. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The world says, if you have something to show off, show it off. Do it. Go for the glitz. Go for the glamour. Go for whatever wows people. Several weeks ago, I talked about the fickleness of those who followed Jesus when he was on earth. He had crowds following him because of the miracles of healing that he performed. They saw him make a blind man see, and they went ecstatic. 
They saw him make a lame person walk, and they couldn't believe their eyes. They saw someone who couldn't hear begin to hear. They saw all these miracles, and they said, we want to follow this guy because he's doing some amazing stuff, and it makes us feel good. It gives us this emotional high that we, are, we want that. We want that. We want to follow you, Jesus. And then they found out that Jesus could make food out of nothing. They saw him take five loaves and two fish and multiply it to over 5,000 people, and they said, boy, that's where I want to be because when I'm around him, I will never go hungry. Then, right after he fed the 5,000, he stood up in the middle of the disciples and he said in John 6, 51, I am the bread, living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the light of the world. They started hearing that and they, they started grumbling and complaining because they wanted the flashy stuff. They didn't want all this hard, truthful teaching from a religious fanatic. And they said, bring on the miracle, stop talking, Jesus. Because what you're saying doesn't make sense, and we don't want to follow someone who doesn't make sense. Then Jesus continued in John 6, 61. He said, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said, does this offend you? And he said, no joke. Yes, it does. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. They followed him when he was doing the flashy stuff. But when he started speaking truth, they left. The world wants glamour. The world wants flash. And they say, pursue those things because that was what makes us desirable. The world tells us that exhortation brings identity. Exhortation brings identity. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. There are many people who get an ego boost when they're able to tell someone some deep truth and convince that person that what they're believing is wrong and what I'm believing is right. Brooke talked about that a little bit in his testimony that he was caught up into that when he was a kid of saying he was sarcastic. He told things just out of, this is what I believe. And he, he did something for him. There are a lot of people who become pastors, elders, Sunday school teachers, because they want to be able to stand up and say, this is the truth. And it does something for them inside. That ego boost. The world says if you can share something, if you can speak the word of God in a certain way, that is your identity. There are a lot of people in the world who would look up at me and say, hey, pastor, you're able to talk pretty well. That's who you are. What are you going to do if you're not able to preach anymore? What will that do for you? Because they think this is my identity. There was a young upstart preacher from Seattle, Washington, named Mark Driscoll. Started a church out there. Uh, grouped multiple thousands going to this church. He was pretty smart. He could preach a good sermon, and he uh, started streaming his sermons online before anyone knew that was a thing. We have live streaming because of him back in the mid-90s, and what he started doing internet-wise with his church. He started preaching the around the world, becoming really, really famous, and one of his assistants came up to him one day. Uh, they, they were in England, 
and crowds were just flocking around them, and one of his assistants thought this was pretty crazy, and he, he jokingly said to Mark Driscoll, you know, they're treating, all these people are treating him like a rock star, and he says, wow, who are all these people here for? Joking. Mark Driscoll looked at him, true story, straight face, not joking at all. He says, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm a pretty big deal. The world says that what we say, that what we can do, is our identity. But it's a lie. The world says that spirituality, not just exhortation, but spirituality can be an identity. Same verse, Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. There are some people who truthfully, honestly, have an amazing faith in God. They believe that God can do some amazing things, and they see God do some of those amazing things. Jesus refers to people like this in Matthew chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. Jesus says, because you have so little faith, this is why you're not able to do these things. He says, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from the here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Jesus in this is not just talking about physical mountains, but he's talking about metaphorical mountains too. Things in our lives that we think are impossible or insurmountable. And we look up to these people who have such great faith and we think they're so amazing. We say, oh, so-and-so, they have, they have such faith. I wish I were her and had that faith. Or so-and-so, oh my goodness, look, he prayed and this happened. Boy, I wish I were him and had such faith. Even people in the secular world, they look at people who have some sort of spirituality, some sort of faith in some sort of God, even if that God isn't our God, and they say, wow, you know what? That faith, I so respect that faith. And, and I'm so, I'm glad you have that faith. That faith makes you something. That is your identity because you have that faith and you're able to handle such hardship. Your identity is your spirituality, they say. The world says that charity provides what's needed. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Humanity, we are all selfish people. Many, most people give to charities and organizations because of what it does. We get a tax break. We get a name in the community. We, when we write out the check, we have this nice little feeling inside of our heart. It's all based upon what I get out of it. There's a phrase out there. It says, cast your bread upon the water, and it will return to you. It's, a, it's from Scripture, it's a paraphrase of scripture. As the NIV says in Ecclesiastes 11.1, 1, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. There are many people who will say, give to charity and God will bless you. Do something and you will get what is needed. Your cup will overflow. Send in your seed money and God will pour riches upon you, is what they say. That's what the Christian world says. The non-Christian world says the same thing, but they use different words. They talk about karma. And they say, do good things and good things will happen. It's the same teaching. They just put it on two different ways. They, it's, it's a teaching of the world that if you need something, pay it forward and it will come back to you. That's what the world says. The world also says that martyrdom provides what's needed. 
Martyrdom provides what's needed. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now the world, the secular world, doesn't often teach this martyrdom aspect, but there are other religions, and there are some teachings within certain churches that say that someone will receive more blessing if they go through a hard time for God. And if they go through that hard time for God, they will give an added, get an added blessing from God. The Muslims believe that if they're killed in holy war, they will be immediately transported to heaven and surrounded by all sorts of pleasures that I'm not going to talk about here right now. Paul here, some translations seem to suggest that Paul is only speaking about dying, but the wording that he has used, he's talking about all sorts of bodily destruction, even that which doesn't bring death in this passage. He's talking about those times when in our weakness, we're able to show the gospel better. First, Second Corinthians 11, Paul details a lot of these physical hardships that he went through. He says, 2 Corinthians 11.30, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And he goes and talks about the shipwrecks he's been through, the floggings, the beatings, the, the ridicules, all these hardships that he's gone through for the sake of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 12, he sums up, he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, and in hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says that through my weakness, I see Christ working in me. He gives me strength. The world and other religions say, hey, if we're able to do something, if we're able to go through something, if we're able to be something, to show our commitment to God, to prove God we are worth it, then something that we are longing for will be provided. We will gain something. We'll go through this penance and God will give us it, what we need. This is the world perspective. And the world lies through its teeth because it is direct opposite of what God teaches. What is God's perspective? I'm, I'm grateful that we don't have to wonder if we pull ourselves away from the teaching of the world for just a little bit of time and open up our Bible, we see his perspective very easily if we just turn ourselves away from the world and start studying his scripture. We see the truth. We see that love is beautiful. Not flashy gifts. Love is beautiful. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The world says that flashy gifts are beautiful, that they are attractive, and Paul says without love, these gifts are nothing. Nothing. Therefore, it is love that brings the beauty, which begs the question that I start off with in my introduction. What is love? What is love? If love is the thing that brings beauty into our life, what is it? In the culture that Paul's writing to, they would say that love is an emotional thing, or love is a sexual thing, or love is an ecstatic thing. That's what they would say. Paul says, no, that's not true. Uh, as we're going to discuss next week, Paul says that love is an attitude which shows itself in acts of will as regard, respect, and concern the welfare of the other. Love is an action based upon a choice to do what is right for someone else, 
putting their welfare above your own interests. This is love, biblically. Love does not mean like. There are plenty of people I do not like, but I still love them. Love is not lust. Love is something different. Now, I have to step into a little bit of mess right now. I'm going to be a little bit uh, academic, so you c- if you don't want it, you can just fall asleep right now. I'll tell you when to wake up. Those of you who want to stay awake can. There are some people who talk about 1 Corinthians 13, and they will say that Paul is speaking of agape love. It's a Greek word, agape. Uh, they will define agape as divine love, the highest version of love. And, and the New Testament uses three different words for love. Greek has a whole bunch of other words for love. But in the New Testament, there's three words for love. There's agape, it's one form of love. Phileo, which uh, lots of people will, will uh, define as brotherly love. And then eros, which is erotic love. And they will throw this, this uh, hierarchy and say agape is divine love, the highest love. Phileo is brotherly love, and that's between friends, and it's, it's marred by our sin. And then eros is all the way at the bottom because that's erotic love, it's lust. That, that hierarchy is not true. Uh, and so if you have heard this teaching, I am sorry, you have heard something that is not biblically accurate at this time. Agape, at the time that Paul is writing, is ordinary love. Many times, if you look at Greek literature at this time, agape and phileo is used interchangeably all throughout their literature. They say agape once, phileo the next. Agape once, phileo the next. There's also a slight shift that's going on. They're using these terms interchangeably, but there's a shift that's happening that you see a little later, a couple of years after Paul's writing, where agape becomes just the ordinary word for love, and phileo it means to kiss. It's not love, it's kiss. The, the words change over time. Um, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was translated before the New Testament was written, it's called the Septuagint or the LXS, uses agape, what some people call divine love. They use agape for Amnon's incestuous lust for his sister Tamar. So if you're studying the Bible and you're looking at all these different words for love and you're tempted to think that whenever it says agape, it is meaning something divine love, know that it isn't. It is a word for love. That's all it is. What is important is the theology we attach to the word. That's always what's important, is what do we mean by a word? Words can mean anything we want to. I can stand up here and say gay. And there's a whole bunch of other meanings that could come to my mind. If if people who are older fashioned will think of happy, joyful, frolicking, kicking up your heels. Modern days, it means homosexual. Same word. Whole bunch of different meanings. What's important is the theology that is attached to it. Love is just a word until we attach a meaning to it. A theology to it. Love, according to the Bible, is doing what is right for someone else. No matter if it's agape, phileo, or whatever. Whenever the Bible talks about the love that a Christian is supposed to have for another Christian, or love a Christian is supposed to have for a non-Christian, whatever the Greek is, it is an action based upon a choice to do what is right for someone else. 
Paul writes in our specific verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Paul's talking about the gifts of tongues here, and he's gonna define them more in 1 Corinthians 14, but in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, the gift of tongues is given for ourselves, for the sake of ourself. He says it doesn't help anyone without a translation. Throughout the book of Corinthians, he's trying to get the, the Corinthians to, to, to stop looking at themselves and start looking at each other. And he says, if anything's done for my own pleasure or for my own benefit and it doesn't help someone else, it's not beautiful. It's not. Yes, it might be a gift of spirit. It might have helped me out, but our focus is supposed to help each other. It's supposed to help each other. And if it's not done to help someone else, love for the good of the other brings beauty, ultimately, because in that we are showing Christ. Paul also says love brings identity. Not only does love bring beauty, but love brings identity. What did God tell us? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Statement of our identity. We place our focus as humans so much on what we do what we can do, how we can say something, what we can know, how we interact, what we get out of these things, how we can boost ourselves. But Christians are called to live a life that shows love, to stop looking at what we can do and can be and start looking at the person next to us. That's what we're called to be and to live as Christians. What does the person across from me need? What does my spouse need? What do my kids need? What do my brothers and sisters need? What do my coworkers need? That should be continually going through our head because we're supposed to be living for the other. Jesus said, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. There was a movie that was recently shared with me called Taking Chance. Phenomenal movie phenomenal movie. It's about heroes of war and showing honor to a soldier who died overseas and showing that honor as his body is transported across the United States. That movie shows over and over and over again how how these soldiers, they're known not by what they have done, but what they have done for others. The love they had shown, John 15, 13. Even though we live so much for ourselves trying to boost our identity but what we can do, we seer heroes and we recognize that their identity is what they've done for others. But we have a hard time applying that to ourselves. I'm leading a monthly movie discussion group for high school or junior and seniors, college students, young professionals, anyone 17 and up because the movies that we're showing are, 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 are on the edge. I call this the diving off the edge study. Uh, and we watch this mov- these movies and we discuss cultural concepts. We talked about capital punishment last month and what does the Bible actually say about that and uh, all that sort of stuff. Next month, we're going to watch a movie called The Last Full Measure, which is not a pleasant movie to watch. And it's about those who received the Medal of Honor in the Vietnam War. Their identity is proven throughout that film as based upon how they've loved we know this, we see it in our life, we, we know John 15, 13, but so many people pursue spiritual gifts, they pursue godly things, they pursue the things they do in life, they, be, they define what they wanna say and how they wanna act 
based upon what it will do for me. And they pursue those things for themselves, but spiritually, it's love that enriches a spiritual gift and gives it value. If we don't have love, that gift is nothing. Ministry without love cheapens both the minister and those who are touched by it. But ministry with love enriches the whole church. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Love brings identity because we're showing Christ. Our identity is not what we do, but in whom we show and how we help others. Love provides something. Love provides something. What does God tell us? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We can do all the charity work in the world. All the charity work in the world. We can go through all the physical hardships in the world. But if we're focused only on ourselves, it was for nothing. Nothing. But if we stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about those around us, something changes. When we stop asking, what can I gain out of this, and start asking, how can I help? The emptiness inside us, whatever we are trying to pursue and get, starts getting filled. Because in that moment, we realize that we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. In that moment, we realize that what we are doing and what we're getting out of this isn't, isn't worth what we're thinking. What's important is showing Jesus. Love is an imitation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the person who laid down his life for his friends. God the Father showed his love for us by sending his son. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. God the Son taught us love by giving his life and by commanding us to love one another. John 13, verses 34 to 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. The Holy Spirit teaches us love by pouring out God's love on our hearts. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. When we stop being selfish and stop caring only about ourselves, we're giving everyone around us a picture of who Jesus is. So how are we doing? If we looked at our lives and said, am I showing people a picture of Jesus in my life? Am I caring more about serving those around me than about boosting something within me? What is the answer? The Corinthians were not loving each other. They were abusing the gift of tongues. There was division in the church. They envied each other's gifts of the Spirit. They were selfish. They were impatient one another in public meetings. They engaged in behavior that was disgraceful to Jesus Christ. We can go on and on and on, all the things they were doing. And Paul was urging them in 1 Corinthians 13, you've seen who you are, Corinthians. You've seen who you are. You need to be something different. In the words of Warren Wiersbe, the main evidence of maturity in the Christian life is a growing love for God and for God's people as well as a love for the lost souls. 
It has well been said that love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. So are we sick or are we not? Do we need a heart transplant? Love is the way that we're to live. It is the function by which gifts of the Spirit are being used. If we are not defaulting to love those around us by our actions, we are showing people that we don't know who Jesus Christ is and we don't know what he has done for us if we're not willing to show love in the way that Jesus taught. Craig Bloomberg, another writer, notes this. We too face the problems against which Paul warns us in verses one to three. Some people who speak in tongues insist that everyone must imitate them, a most unloving action toward those whom God is not so gifted. Many who proclaim God's word seem to think that preaching requires a change of tone and volume which shouts more than showing compassion. Many intellectuals, including Christians, destroy their opponents' arguments in person and in print in a style that is not any different from that of the hardened cynic or non-believer. Some of our greatest philanthropists substitute giving for faith, as do civic and fraternal organizations that pride themselves on charitable causes into which they often throw money without the costly, loving, personal involvement of the majority of their members. Liberal Christians sometimes substitute social action for the authentic Christian love that flows only from the assurance of salvation. Modern-day warfare has seen thousands of young people sacrificing their lives in battle and in terrorism, often in the name of religion, and sometimes, as in Islam, in hopes of quick passage to heaven. Tragically, without the foundation of genuine Christian love, any such martyrs only speed up their trip to hell. The Christians, the Corinthians, were not known by how they loved each other. Instead, they were known by how they looked out only for themselves and tore the body of Christ apart. What are we known by? What are we as Calvary Bible Church, if we went out in the community, what are we known by? Next week, we're gonna dive more into what love is, and we're gonna discuss how Jesus showed love in detail as we continue on in 1 Corinthians 13.